This is The Solid Podcast. I'm John Bruner. And I'm David Craner. Solid is about the new hardware movement, the radical new way that technology in the world around us is being conceived, built, and connected. Our guest today is Joe Byron, VP for IoT Technology at ThingWorks, a PTC business and O'Reilly partner. The ThingWorks platform helps companies find value in their smart, connected devices and makes it easy for developers to build innovative machine-to-machine and Internet of Things applications. This is the first in a series of podcast episodes that we'll publish in collaboration with ThingWorks over the coming year. For more information on the ThingWorks platform, visit thingworks.com developer. Let's begin with a sort of a general set of questions here. Let's talk about the Internet of Things. What is the Internet of Things? Oh, I was hoping you could tell me. <laughs> <laughs> I get asked this a lot, so I'm interested in your answer. Well, you know, there are certainly many different definitions, but if you take, if you pick apart the phrase literally, it's the internet and things are communicating on the internet. Now you might say, well, really all of the gear, routers and switches and cabling, those are all things. It's true. But what we're talking about with the internet of things are everyday products, industrial machines, medical devices, vehicles, stuff that wasn't connected to the internet 10 years ago. Now we have the ability, uh, either because software or hardware is now better suited to make those unconnected things get connected, or because uh, we really just creatively discovered things that we wouldn't have expected could be connected, should be connected. So the Internet of Things is quite simply the idea of connecting devices, machines, and environments instrumented with sensors to the internet so that we can understand better how those things are being used, uh, potentially control them remotely, and optimize workflows and really, it sounds a little bit um, blue sky, but really help the human equation and make a better life. Um, it's, there are some grand challenges that IoT enables. Things like smart farming to help us you know, produce better crops, uh, things like smart operations and smart factories that help us more efficiently produce other things or, or, or um, deliver products or uh, provide operational efficiency. Uh, so we're really still at the, at the beginning of the wider expanse of what IoT can do for us. That being said, <clears throat> um, for over a decade, products have been connected to the internet. We called it M2M for a while, or machine to machine. That wasn't the greatest term, uh, although it was it was fairly evocative for certain situations. But what was remote service and then machine to machine has really matured into a wider context of Internet of Things. Yeah, I, I get stuck in this uh, this conversation a lot, particularly with people on the internet um, who who say, "What is the Internet of Things?" We've had M to M since the the sixties. So wh- how do, how does Internet of Things differ from from what we used to call M to M? Yeah, well, you know, M to M, if you take it literally, things have been wired together since the 60s, uh, even before then. uh, Copper. (laughs) Coaxial um, cables. Coaxial cables or even just power distribution. So um, I think that the industrial uh, automation uh, move in the 80s really started to open up our eyes into what we could do when we instrument machines uh, in that in that case, specifically within factory settings, so that we can understand how they're being operated um, and get real-time status from them. Now, in those days, and, and really up until the recent uh, past, 
industrial automation was about servers and, and computers hardwired into uh, a local network throughout the factory um, for, uh, with something called SCADA, um, SCADA systems deployed in factories and MES systems. And, uh, and that was fantastic. Um, if you look back in the 80s, and, and I've done this recently, I've, I've gone and looked in the archives of some periodicals from the time, the industrial automation buzz at that time was uh, really around how are we outplacing humans in the factory? This is, you know, a, kind of a scary proposition and exciting at the same time because it takes humans out of the equation for certain dangerous operations or uh, we don't need a person to be within an environment that has harsh chemicals or, uh, or other harsh environmental factors. Um, but people were very concerned about what would happen uh, to the workers in those factories. Well, I can't say that really the, the best outcome happened in that regard, um, but it, it has happened and machines have replaced humans in factories. Uh, but we've, we've really only scratched the surface into what we can do to optimize the operation of those things. So machine to machine through the 90s and early uh, part of the 2000s was around how do we get more value out of these connected devices in the factory? Uh, and how can we even potentially send signals from outside of the factory to a centralized server so that we can build reports and, and look across our factory operations and understand um, at a grander scale how our, our operations at, at the enterprise level are happening. But machine to machine was very much a stovepipe paradigm. Uh, I might have a server in my data center or in my enterprise back office, and I might be getting signals from something that's out uh, remote in the field uh, but all of these solutions were really bespoke for the particular use case. The protocols used, the communication techniques, the server infrastructure, the software, all built from scratch each time. One of the central tenets of IoT is the use of a platform approach, just as we have a platform approach for building web applications and mobile applications today. I remember being at uh, part of the very beginning of the web app phenomenon in uh the early 90s, um, 1993, et cetera, learning about the web and building some first web servers literally from scratch. Uh, in those days, particularly as a, as a college student, once you learn about this HTTP protocol mm -hmm. and HTML, exciting new stuff, you get the source code from, uh, you know, for the NCSA Mosaic browser and server, mm -hmm. and you look at the W3 uh, see specification on HTML and HTTP. And we were literally building applications that used this HTTP and HTML um, interface from scratch. And the concept of a reusable web application framework uh, really wasn't part of the picture until the latter part of the mid 90s and, and into the later 90s. So I look at IoT right now as being, um, you know, the paradigm shift is right about where we were in 1997, 1998, where we started to realize, wow, we're going to be building a lot of these web applications. And I really can't be writing my own HTTP server every time. I need an abstraction layer between my web browser and what's happening on the server. And so things like Java Enterprise Edition, uh, Microsoft ASP, uh, the use of Python on the server, scripting languages, et cetera. Um, all of that stuff started to happen in the mid to late 90s. And now there's a very robust and mature set of tools. No one would dream about using uh, CGI applications to build a web application. 
uh, I think we we have to accelerate the IoT adoption even faster than we did for the web. So the presence of these IoT platforms, such as ThingWorks, really will help build that mainstream adoption of IoT solutions so that your average developer, your average technologist, shouldn't need to understand all of the low-level details, and there are many, for connecting the myriad types of devices to the IoT and building the kinds of applications and analytics that you need to do. Right. So in the same way that, uh, you know, as a, as a web developer, you don't need to understand tile servers for mapping, for instance, because you just use someone else's module. And inside that module, by the way, the people who built Google's tile servers don't need to understand some of the mechanics of JavaScript interpretation. We're, we're getting to a point where building IoT um, systems, connecting hardware to the internet doesn't require a deep understanding of electrical engineering and networking and so on. That's right. That's right. Um, you know, it's, it's still, uh, there's still a high degree of variability when we're connecting devices at what I call the edge of the IoT. But there are standards that are emerging and there are, you know, maybe even more important than standards, best practices and methodologies. Um, and we, 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 we talk a lot about that in our upcoming book and upcoming series. Um, but it, it's, it's important for us to establish a framework for, you know, how do you go about building a solution? What are the big architectural blocks that you should be thinking about. And when I drill down into one of those blocks, I don't want to be at the electron level. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't want to be at the physical connection level, <clears throat> although that is a reality. But we're building upon things like, you know, radio frequency technology, such as Zigbee and Bluetooth low energy. Um, we're still at times interfacing with legacy protocols um, and even proprietary forms of connectivity that are built into industrial and, and other products. Um, but as product manufacturers look forward on their product roadmap and they think about how they will build the next generation of their product that's, that is uh, going to take part in the Internet of Things, there are um, some, some very nice uh, packaged modules and microprocessors um, and, and techniques for getting those devices on the Internet. To, to what degree does someone who's working on this kind of thing need to understand the, the, the soldering level, the electronics? Are, are the electronics advanced to a degree where, for most people, developing the architectures of, of, an, of an IoT system don't have to worry about the electronics at all? Is it purely a software matter? Um, well, it's in between. So it's not purely software. There is the physical... Actually, I, I find IoT extremely exciting as a... Fundamentally, I'm a software guy, but I'm also kind of a gadget geek. Um, I think it's very exciting to connect a physical device that has its own, you know, uh, physical sensors and physical actuators. I can connect it to the internet and I can learn about it remotely and I can uh, understand its status remotely. Those things are very exciting, but I don't need to get out my soldering iron. Mm -hmm. um, there is an emergence of plug and play sensors with certain microcontroller processors. Um, certainly from the maker uh, phenomenon, we have things like Arduino and and people have gotten, um, or I would say that the, the mainstream technologist is far more aware of the ability for him or her to grab an Arduino or a Raspberry Pi or an Intel Galileo and understand how I can connect analog sensors into this digital interface by pushing some jumper wires into a breadboard. Now, some would say, well, that's really just hobbyist stuff. And it's true uh, for prototyping and hobbyist stuff. Uh, those are the tools that you would use. But we found that even your hardcore electrical engineers 
that have been working on a particular product line for decades, uh, they'll still grab a Raspberry Pi or an Arduino and a breadboard and head over to sparkfun.com and buy a bunch of, bunch of sensors so that they can at least get a sense of what's possible. What, what are the types of things that my product, when connected to the internet, could do? And, and how do I understand how to work in this new paradigm? When they take that idea from prototype to the shrunken down productized design, they're probably not going to be using Arduinos inside their products. But the fundamental concepts um, are very accessible for the prototyper or the hobbyist. Yeah. And for what it's worth, there are a lot of deployment applications that are small scale enough, you know, way down in the in the long tail where you can have a, a Raspberry Pi or, or an Arduino in a, in a deployment. I've talked to a lot of uh, people at, at you know, big enterprises who have done surprisingly large deployments on Raspberry Pis, for instance, because these, you know, they cost so much less than an embedded board that you would buy um, pre-made from from a vendor. And then um, everything else in kind of building it out has become accessible. So you can buy a box of 100 resistors from uh, DigiKey or SparkFun now. You could before, but I think the whole supply chain has just become much more accessible. The information you need, the software that runs on it, in the same way that someone at, you know, AT&T might build a script out of Python for a small job, you know, a single person at a desk in a day. Um, you know, I think I think you'll see the same thing happening in hardware. Like we we see the emergence of a of a full stack hardware developer uh, sometime in the next five or ten years. There are already you know a handful of people who do this at, at groups like the Media Lab at the MI, at MIT mm-hmm. who you know can do the electronics, the firmware, and the networked um, cloud backend for connected devices. This is a crazy idea a few years ago that you could have someone who does both electronics yeah, and sure. software. Absolutely. Now it's a reality, right? It is a reality. And, and you're right. It's, it's really about scale. So it, I love the, the maker phenomenon because it's, it's brought the, the easy to use tools into the hands of folks who uh, maybe were intimidated by doing hardware level construction. Uh, and, but to be sure, for certain types of solutions... Uh, having a Raspberry Pi and an Arduino in the mix of the solution, that could be perfectly fine. Um, you could put it inside a ruggedized housing and it could be good to go for, you know, for production use. The scale on the other side of the uh, continuum would be a consumer product manufacturer that's going to ship tens of millions of units. They're not going to have an Arduino inside the product, mm-hmm. most mm-hmm. likely, because their engineers will figure out how to shrink down, toss away components that they weren't using. Uh, Raspberry Pi's got you know, a fast processor and tons of memory, maybe only need a few kilobytes and maybe only need 300 megahertz. So I like the emergence of this path from prototyping to uh, shrunken down productized construction. And I think the hardware vendors that are showing their users how to go from prototyping idea with a starter kit to a high volume production run, they're going to have the best traction ultimately Mm -hmm. because when you run out of runway with a Raspberry Pi, where do you go from there? Um, versus uh, Intel's strategy, which is here's something that's very much like a Raspberry Pi, the Intel Galileo. But by the way, when you need 10 million units, there's a path for you, right? right. Come and talk to you, to us and we'll show you how you can use our Intel Edison or Intel Atom or, in, uh, or whatever the, the next gen uh, chipset's going to be. We'll show you how you can bake that into a high volume product. Everything about that entire path has gotten so much easier. I mean, getting a, a PCB made in a in a factory domestically or in China uh, in like a small or medium scale, you know, you can get 100 PCBs done in Shenzhen now, which is unthinkable again mm-hmm. from a few years ago. 
So that whole, you can see the the stack is just getting more accessible from the prototyping up through the, the full-scale deployments. That said, there's still a lot of embedded uh, uh, chip vendors who, you know, charge a thousand bucks for a dev kit and require you to show, uh, you know, a, a big purchase order before they'll even ship it to you. They do, but they're changing. I yeah. mean, they're, they're really coming to understand. And you were talking earlier about the sort of average developer now having the tools and, and capabilities to do really end-to-end -end prototyping and development. But it's still important that when, if someone purchases one of these hardware IoT starter kits, out of the box, it might have some lights that blink, but then I got to do a whole bunch of stuff mm -hmm. to see it do something. Okay, it's not IoT just because it has embedded Wi-Fi. Mm -hmm. It's IoT capable, but I need to see some cool stuff happening in the cloud pretty soon. Or I can't really call this an IoT project now, can I? Mm -hmm. um, so we've put a heavy focus on that here at ThingWorks and having a developer zone that lets someone buy one of these starter kits from a hardware manufacturer, uh, some of which we're, we're partnered with. And within five minutes, they can see something happening in the cloud and interact with their device from the cloud. Um, very, very important. Very, very powerful. The, the eyes open up. We've done these boot camps that we call them on roadshows. Uh, where we have groups of developers come in off the street and do hackathons and learn how to connect stuff. And it's it's very exciting environment. Um, we've got, uh, you know, buckets of resistors and LED lights and, and servos uh, and breadboards and Raspberry Pis and Intel Galileos. But at the end of the day, literally by the end of the hackathon day, um, all of the hardware stuff is just kind of like, oh yeah, we already have that. Now we're working on our app, right. and that's where we want them to be. We want them to be, we want them to be working on their applications, um, which is really where the, where the cool stuff finally happens. Yeah, the hardware is just kind of an endpoint to something intelligent, and then the value is the software. Right. So these are these people you're working with are are software people who are kind of extending their stack into hardware just enough to connect the hardware, right? Yes, very often, very often they're students. Uh, hmm. When we've done this in the in the Boston area, we've had folks from MIT and Northeastern University literally walk out of class. They find out about our hackathon and stumble in. And before they know it, they're there all night building something cool. Mm -hmm. uh, we had, uh, we were lucky enough to have Steve Wozniak as hmm. the judge for our hackathon <laughs> that was part of our LiveWorks event uh, here in Boston back in May. And um, he almost uh, had a hard time deciding the winner. We had so many really, really cool. Um, applications that were built literally in an evening. Mm -hmm. Now, an evening means, what was it? Probably 5 p.m. to 4 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, <clears throat> less, to, less than a day, um, developers and even non-developers who just you know, sort of influence design and application uh, construction were able to build some pretty compelling IoT solutions that you could, you could, even, you could imagine being taken to market. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And literally the next day, Steve Wozniak on stage reviews the the finalists and makes a decision on a winner. It was very exciting. Do you remember what the winner was? Uh, yeah, it was. Um, I don't remember exactly what they called their solution, um, but it was about uh, uh, traffic intersection monitoring. Hmm. So it was a it used a combination of sensing, so to understand whether a pedestrian has walked up to an intersection, and computer vision to understand what is the traffic pattern right now at the intersection and connectivity to a mobile phone. So a pedestrian running the app, uh, walking up to an instrumented uh, traffic intersection hmm. would get you know, a pulse from their phone or a buzz to say, hey, by the way, you know, you, in case you're staring at your phone right now or looking the other way, you're about to 
uh, encounter a busy intersection. Mm-hmm. So so mm-hmm. be warned. And you know, obviously, they weren't able to build the next this next part in an in an evening. But the idea would be uh, the vehicles would also have such instrumentation. So if a pedestrian is about to cruise right through the intersection, hey, you know, Mr. Driver, be aware that there's potentially a, an impaired person mm-hmm. who's at the intersection, or maybe somebody who's just not paying attention. Mm-hmm. Now, to make that actually happen, obviously, everyone would need the phone app and everyone would need to have the vehicle app. But it's those kinds of um, I wouldn't call this necessarily a grand challenge, but it's a socially aware pro- it's a problem that IOT can address um, mm-hmm. and, and helps us in a, in a social way. Traffic control is a really great example of, I think, the, the new mindset of the Internet of Things as compared to M2M. Um, the way that you saw driverless cars, intelligent traffic systems presented on like Discovery Channel specials back in the <laughs> early 90s yeah. was that there was some sort of, you know, row of transponders implanted down the center line of every lane, every 10 feet or something. And the car is driving over them and communicating with them. And then right. they come to the traffic light and the traffic light <clears throat> is broadcasting a signal from a central place. It's all, all a very like top down system of just coming up with information and, and dispersing. It. And a lot of it is is almost analog, you know, running the car over things embedded in the roadway. Right. And now when you look at these systems, that one, for instance, it's a it's a much more flexible sort of blend of um, of software, of hardware, of communication along the edges of the Internet of Things and not just sort of top down of interpretation and intelligence, both locally and in the cloud. You know, cars um, are using machine vision to interpret where the lanes right. are. If the traffic light isn't intelligent and broadcasting, they can use machine vision to understand whether it's red or green. They're getting some signals from other cars, again, along the edge, but also interpreting what other cars are doing, you know, with heuristics. So it's it's a, it's an interesting change when you look at kind of what the dream of intelligent traffic was in 1995 and what the dream of intelligent traffic is now, 20 years later. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned machine vision. I think um, a lot of what's possible now is a confluence of you know, mature software, um, readily available tools for prototyping like we've been discussing, obviously Moore's Law with uh, ultra fast processors with, um, you know, very good battery life and advancements in things like computer vision. We've been um, investigating and and building uh, some really, really compelling prototypes of augmented reality Hmm. mashed up with Internet of Things. So uh, the first AR app I ever used was, I think, was part of Yelp, where I could like look (laughs) at the through the camera view of my uh, Yelp phone edition and see like, oh, there's a restaurant down the street. Mm -hmm. That was kind of cool, right? The first time you used it, but didn't really use it after that. Um, But when you think in in a factory operations or a work site with machines that are instrumented with IoT, so that's great. They're sending their signals. Someone can be viewing a remote dashboard and see what's going on. But what about the field? operators who are right there at the work site. Um, as they look around at equipment, wouldn't it be really cool if they were wearing some AR goggles or even just used a, a, a VR application running on a tablet that let them kind of cruise around through the operations and not just see the physical product, but see the digital twin overlay mm-hmm. of what's happening with that product and what has recently happened with it right on their field of vision. It's very RoboCop. It's very Terminator, um, but in a good way. <laughs> Right, right, right. In, a, in an extremely productive way. Yeah. Yes. Well, RoboCop was extremely productive. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Different objectives. We perhaps. just couldn't scale the design. We can scale this design better than RoboCop. Right, right. Um, speaking of scaling, earlier you mentioned you know, that at the, at the outset of, of developing kind of an IoT application or 
um, or, or connecting a bunch of things to the internet, there's a process of developing an architecture of thinking through where the modules go um, and how they'll link together, what it is that you want out of it. So can you just sort of walk us through what what are those modules and, and what does that process of developing the architecture look like at the outset? Sure. I would. I always encourage uh, folks to think first, not about how they're going to connect the devices and what sensors you're going to have, but think about what is the what is the environment that you're trying to connect in the first place? Uh, is it a product or is it an environment? Is it an operation? And think about the model or API you'd like to expose. Imagine there was this digital representation in the cloud of this physical thing or environment, and you just wanted to allow application developers to interact with that digital model through a well-established API. What would that API look like? And we call that the model and ThinkWorks. There's a, there's a, a very um, well-defined paradigm of establishing that model. And everything sort of radiates out from there. Once you define the model, um, you're now able to connect literally uh, a remotely connected thing into that model, and it can publish data into the model. An application on the other side through the cloud can interact with the API without needing to understand exactly how the thing is connected. I don't need to know what kind of sensors are out there. I don't need to know that it was a, uh, a Modbus protocol or a Zigbee or Z-Wave radio down in the local environment. All I need to know is I'm interacting with this thing. I'm interacting with this washing machine and it's got some properties that I can inspect. What's its uh, running hours? What's its current wash cycle status? And I can call some services on the API and ask for its history of runtime. I can potentially push down a new program to the washing machine and tell it how to better run the cycle for a certain kind of clothing. There are all these things that I can do now with this digital representation in the cloud of the physical thing. So establishing that model also decouples us from bespoke applications that are just built for a single purpose. Right, right. Um, and, and, and it enables some innovation around this new model. So imagine application developers within an enterprise or even through business partners or heck, even through, the, through a community of, of developers that can build innovative experiences that are over the top of the IoT solution. So starting with that model, then figuring out how to connect the edge of the IoT into that model, um, and then start building your applications. So I imagine that right now we're in a period of, of a lot of transition on the physical side of things. I mean, the the fleet is undergoing a lot of renewal, right? Whether the, by fleet you mean um, you know your industrial tools or your cars or yeah. the consumer ele consumer electronics, consumer appliances that are in your maintenance network. A lot of them are going getting replaced from machines that either aren't connected or have kind of a serial connection or something to machines that are fully capable of being assigned an IP address and you know connecting straight to the internet through open protocols. How flexible is the model that you're coming up with? How flexible can it be in terms of accommodating, um, you know, changes and completely new technologies on on the edge? Do you have to say, here are the six things I want my connected washing machine to do at the outset, and then change the model later on if if you find a washing machine that can do six more things? Well, certainly, like any API, uh, the model will change over time, and so this is why it's important to have that as a central construct. Otherwise. You know, guess what? Even if you weren't thinking about a model or an API, you're going to have one anyway. It's just going to be strewn across 14 different parts of the solution, and it's going to be impossible to change. So having this centralized, you know, understanding of what the model is lets us uh, not 
not solidify it in concrete, but that gives us the ability to change it over time. Now, one very common implementation pattern, particularly with product manufacturers, has been, you know, my product wasn't designed for the IoT, but it's got this diagnostic port. And mm -hmm. when I need a, a field technician to fix it, he or she goes out there with a laptop and plugs the laptop into the diagnostics port and they can do stuff locally. Mm -hmm. Well, great. Here's what we can do. We can retrofit that product for the IoT by dropping down a black box gateway that understands how to plug into the diagnostics port. And it's your bridge now to the internet. You may, in next generations of that product, build Wi-Fi connectivity and some in, you know, IoT intelligence directly into the skin mm -hmm. of the product. But your digital model in the cloud doesn't care about that. Maybe you won't have all the bells and whistles that you will ultimately have. But importantly, the applications, the business processes downstream, the analytics that's being done against that digital model, they don't need to change as you get future editions of your product. And very importantly, you don't have to wait for your engineering team and your product development cycle, which could be years for many product manufacturers. Right. You don't need to let that all play out. You can get started today by retrofitting your legacy products. Hmm. And, and when you retrofit your legacy products, I imagine you're plugging something into the diagnostic port. And then what you get is just a waterfall of undifferentiated proprietary diagnostic data. Who's who's writing the layer that interprets that? Uh, so there's always a layer that interprets that. Um, it might be aggregating uh, information from an analog sensor and sending it periodically or applying some threshold and uh, translating a proprietary format of the data into something that's more uh, standardized for, for transmission uh, into the cloud. Uh, typically, the well, we, what we like to do at ThinkWorks is provide a set of tools so that our subject matter experts, our customers, can provide that translation and logic themselves using high-level tools like scripting environment or mm -hmm. even a configurable agent. Um, so you can get as low level as you want to get, but at the highest level, we're able to, you know, pretty rapidly um, give them the tools that they need to do that data transformation. Mm -hmm. You know, and luckily, uh, particularly with what we'll say in quotes are legacy products, this data stream is not very complicated. Mm -hmm. It might just be like an ASCII file <laughs> <laughs> that the diagnostic port pushes out. So it's typically right. not um, not too involved. Do you see a lot of pressure on OEMs on the the companies that are making these devices that will ultimately be connected to standardize and and uh, use open protocols for this kind of data? Or do you see a lot of them developing new ways to sort of um, silo this stuff, keep it proprietary, uh, force their customers to use their maintenance contracts and, and their interpretation services? Yeah, I, I certainly haven't seen anyone who thinks they want to be proprietary. <laughs> uh -huh. Now, uh, the closer you get to the electrons, um, obviously a particular product has its own unique characteristics. Um, so, but but very soon beyond uh, that uh, that product specific information, uh, we all like to see a translation into a fairly standard protocol. Now, the standards are many. One of our colleagues uh, here at ThingWorks likes to say. Standards are like toothbrushes. Everybody knows they need one, but nobody wants to use the other guys. Um, <laughs> but I think what, what will happen is we will have standard protocols and techniques that are specific to certain kinds of purposes. We shouldn't have a thousand. Maybe we'll have a dozen. Just like today, we've got you know RESTful APIs in the cloud that mm -hmm. some of which still use XML and some of them use JSON and 
Uh, there's still some soap based uh, <laughs> web services say, out yeah. there. Um, and I don't think anyone's saying soap is still a valid way to go. But but the fact remains that there's no one right way to do everything. Mm-hmm. There shouldn't be a million ways to do it. But we'll end up with certain industry specific uh, or use case or setting specific protocols and techniques. Mm-hmm. And then it'll become a little more, a little easier to, to sort of um, apply the same ideas and models to a bunch of different things. You're not you're not locked in quite as much. That's right. I mean, if you're a smart home product manufacturer, you're probably going to be looking at how do I work with Nest mm-hmm. um, or how do I play well in Apple HomeKit? Um, maybe I need to cover all of my bases. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll probably be part of the All Scene Alliance and understand how I can best interact with other Wi-Fi enabled devices in the home. Uh, so there will be ecosystems with certain standards and or de facto tools that are associated with that ecosystem. Smart home is one. Maybe smart factory will certainly be another. Mm-hmm. Uh, vehicle instrumentation and uh, smart vehicles will be yet another. Um, we shouldn't all be reinventing the wheel, but we all shouldn't try to use the exact same wheel when, in fact, we need a square. Right, right. The smart home area is an interesting example because there really is an ecosystem race going on right now, right? All the, all the um, sort of most popular hardware manufacturers have developed ecosystems and they are dying to get other people on them. And so you're starting to see everyone kind of get on everyone else's platform yeah, right now. That's right. It's that's a challenge right. though for for the for the makers of these things to avoid getting platformed out of out of their value, right? No one wants to just sell connected light bulb hardware at Lowe's. That's a bad business to be in. That's right. That's right. It is a challenge and I if if they're not careful, those products will become commodities. Um, like I don't care what brand of AAA battery I put in my Xbox 360 controller, mm-hmm. uh, or is it AA? It's probably AA. Um, yeah, you know, certain battery manufacturers might be better, but I don't really have much brand affinity. It's just a battery. Mm-hmm. Um, if we if we're not too careful, and everyone's product works in everyone else's ecosystem without any value add. And it's just going to be like a battery. It's just another light bulb that I screw in. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is a challenge. What's the right sweet spot for having real differentiated product experience um, and being able to play nice with others? Mm-hmm. And I, mm-hmm. We're seeing that play out, obviously, in smart home, but I think will happen in other settings as well. Hmm. You, you, what are you seeing uh, to that effect in like industrial settings? Um, certainly not on the scale uh, or, or um, on the, the short iteration cycle that we're seeing in smart home. But um, I think there's, you know, there are, there are movements like the Industry 4.0 movement. Uh, there's the Industrial Internet Consortium. Um, and in that world, I don't think that folks are too worried about losing their differentiation of their product. Mm-hmm. Um, what they absolutely must and must do and want to do for their customers is not lock their customers into a proprietary ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because industrial products are so specialized um, and uh, so complex, I, I don't see them becoming, uh, I don't see them having a danger of being commoditized. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's really just more a matter of giving your customers the, the tools that they need to do what your customers want to do with the machine that they're buying from you. That's right. And, you know, the charge is being led by the manufacturers of those industrial machines, but there will be uh, the need for solution providers that can provide a, let's, let's, uh, let's imagine a smart operations solution provider. Um, a smart operations solution provider is going to want to connect 
devices from any manufacturer within the setting that the solution is meant for. Um, and it could be uh, several different business partners that they'd be integrating with. That's different than the product manufacturer who's selling their connected product and experience around their product. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So th the, uh, the smart connected operations perspective gives us a lot of insight on the kinds of interoperability we'll need product manufacturers to adhere to. Mm -hmm. And it's really going to be their customers uh, and, and those solution providers for the smart connected operation solutions that demand that from the manufacturers. You mm -hmm. cannot have a proprietary closed system. This cannot be a stovepipe because ultimately what I want to do as an owner operator of this equipment um, is connect them all so that I get the efficiencies of my operation, not just your product. Right, right. right. There's an interesting conversation that I've had with a, a lot of people about um, the idea of a God platform for the IoT. And and what I mean by that, it's a, it's a term I'm borrowing from a guy named uh, Adrian Turner, who came up with it on a panel discussion that I was on a while ago. The idea is that um, in, in each kind of uh, content vertical, there is a risen a God platform. In the case of music, it's Apple. For movies, it's Netflix. For books, it's Amazon. Each of these platforms knows much more about consumers of this content and success factors in the content than the creators of the content do themselves. Mm. You know, what you see is that in the case of Netflix, they've been able to develop these really excellent television and, and film series because they look at how people watch other things and they can figure out exactly what motivates people. Amazon is understood to be able to get pretty granular reading data from Kindles and know which pages people linger on, which pages people skip, when people stop reading a book because it's gotten too boring. Um, you know, Apple has similar data for, for music through iTunes, and they've all been able to use it to start developing, um, you know, content and platforms themselves very successfully. So is this sort of thing going to develop in the case of the IoT? And, and there's some difference of opinion here. I think everyone is kind of racing to do that for the smart home. Mm -hmm. In the case of the industrial internet, it's not clear. I mean, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's not clear that every industrial buyer is going to start to gravitate toward one source for all of their industrial equipment. They may not gravitate toward one source, but there will be a thought leader that can emerge. Mm -hmm. um, it, it might be, for example, GE. Mm -hmm. So I might not have uh, a factory full of uh, solely GE equipment, but uh, you could make the case that GE knows how to create a brilliant factory Mm -hmm. better than most, maybe better than anyone. That their insight gives them, their insight through their data and connected machinery uh, helps them know better than anyone else how to create an incredibly efficient industrial operation. That's right. That's right. And, you know, just like, uh, and I'm not going to say necessarily Google is the God, the God platform for uh, smart home, but just as, as an example, uh, if as a, a product manufacturer for for the smart home, they're not a bad partner to partner up with. I think GE would emerge as the brilliant factory god platform, and uh, they will have some competition. However, even their competitors will want to collaborate and cooperate within the paradigm that they're establishing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's it's an interesting motivator. Then you could, you could start to think of this the competitive pressure that it places on anyone who has a factory to make their operation more efficient. That's true, and you know I'm not personally from a manufacturing factory background. But I've been somewhat surprised to learn that factories are notoriously not connected today. Mm -hmm. um, despite all the industrial automation and M2M stuff we talked about earlier, 
Uh, it's really just at the low level. So, um, and I won't name any names, but this is another uh, pretty surprising anecdote that even companies that produce devices that get connected, their own factory operations are not connected. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> I think that's really, really interesting. Like it, sh it kind of shows you where the focus has been and where the enormous opportunity is mm -hmm. to streamline these factory uh, operations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of machine tools are made by hand, you know, and, and uh, you visit a lot of even pretty large electronics factories in China and see that it is a matter of, you know, an assembly line of people with soldering irons uh, sticking things into iPhones. Well, it's, it's, it's kind of like a, I have this vision of, um, you know, people making uh, microchips and a chip fab operation and everything's on, you know, chalkboards and abacuses. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're making high tech stuff, but, you know, we're, we're scratching it in stone and keeping track of our operations um, using really primitive tools. It's uh, there's maybe a cartoon to be had there. <laughs> this is where we are now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's exciting to see where we're going to be going in the next uh, in the next few years. I feel like the the industry, the world, is sort of caught on to this idea and is starting to look for for how to modernize themselves and connect everything. Yeah, definitely. Well, it's been a pleasure, Joe, and I'm looking forward to more of these over the next year. Uh, we'll be getting together a lot more to to continue the conversation. All right. Excellent. Thank you, John. This episode is part of a collaboration between ThingWorks and O'Reilly. For more information on the ThingWorks platform, visit thingworks.com developer. For links and other information related to this episode, visit radar.oreilly.com. If you liked this conversation, you'd certainly enjoy the Solid Conference. For more on the Solid Conference, visit solidcon.com. Until next time, I'm David Craner. And I'm John Bruder.